Why are top U.S. officials sending mixed messages on American energy? Both Energy Secretary Granholm and President Biden tout the importance of LNG to our national security. Our liquefied natural gas exports have been a significant help to our allies. Now in an election year, the administration has stopped permitting of U.S. liquefied natural gas projects. Tell the administration, stop playing politics with our energy and national security. Visit lightsonenergy.com. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Listening to the Oil and Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks, everyone, for joining us again for episode 336. Who are you? Well, if I talk like this, maybe I'll sound like Paige Wilson. No, <laughs> no? <laughs> nobody can pull off that sultry voice. Like no, Paige. I don't. But and I'm not wearing red lipstick either, so you really can't recognize me. So go ahead and introduce yourself. Most of our listeners know who you are, anyway. Oh, well, maybe I'm Delphina Govia, and I am the host of what is now the Champions of Sustainability. Which used to be our old ESG show. Yep, yep. ESG Energized. Yep. And so Delphine is nice enough to fill in. Paige isn't feeling well. She's okay, audience. She just isn't feeling well. So Delphine was nice enough to drive across town to join the OGG and Global Studios and help record this episode. Before we get into the questions, because this is First Friday Q&A, come on, peeps, leave us a review. You haven't gotten one in a while. Go in the show notes. There's a link. Just click on it. It makes it ridiculously easy. If you want to try to remember, it's lovethepodcast.com forward slash OGTW. Also, our March Mixer is uh, Thursday, March 28th. If you're in the Houston area around that time, sign up. Our money goes to fight human sex trafficking, but it's a great way to network with your oil and gas peers. We have prizes, fun, drinks, food, very small dollar amount to get in. I think it's 20 bucks to get in. Our last one sold out, so I'm warning you ahead of time, peeps. <laughs> if you want to join us, buy your tickets now. And then time for First Friday Q&A, and our first question is from who? Lodewijk, our dear friend from, I believe he's from the Netherlands, is yep. he not? Yep. So Lodewijk had a question for us. He says, I love what Exxon is doing, suing activist investors. Not sure how that's possible. He's asking, if I buy shares in Exxon, can I ask to have a certain policy changed? Can I ask Exxon to enter the uranium enrichment? Can I bring it up to vote? And Ludwig, the answer to your question is probably yes. I also am amazingly happy that Exxon sued the activist investors. The activist investors like to say that they were like normal investors and their changes to Exxon's corporate policy initiatives were done like every other investor, which is not true. We all know the truth. Uh, those two groups uh, bought shares just so they could sit on the board of Exxon. Their goal was to uh, disrupt Exxon's current business model by trying to force Exxon to go down the environmental internal policies that they wanted, not that what everybody wanted, but what they wanted. And the problem was also that the way they applied during the board meetings caused a lot of extra work by Exxon staff. By law, by SEC law, executive team, including the CEO, has to answer these requests. And what's supposed to happen is you you submit one request, there's a protocol for it. The board and the, the executive team during the board meeting is it's set up ahead of time to be read in a certain order, and then it's voted upon. Well, what these groups are doing were submitting multiple requests. And as a shareholder of Exxon, I do not want Exxon's executive team spending time 
answered one request after another after another. They have a freaking company to run. And so these investment group, these active investors were sued by Exxon and they backed down. And the reason they backed down is they knew what they were doing was not for the right thing and they knew they were going to lose in court. So it just made fiscal sense from the back down. Exxon, however, said, thank you for backing down. But you know what? We're, we're going to continue this lawsuit because we don't want somebody else doing this again. And this isn't just an oil and gas thing. This is any public company in the U.S. can have this type of pirating where you have other groups trying to take over using the law to their own advantage. And so I'm glad that Exxon's doing this. But Ludwig, if you did buy enough shares in Exxon, I don't know what that number is, you could ask for policy changes, a protocol, and you could do it. You could also ask Exxon to enter the uranium enrichment market. And as long as you did it the way you're supposed to, Exxon would consider it. It would be brought up to a vote and it may or may not pass. But what these two activist investor companies were doing were just wrong on so many levels. And I am so happy that Exxon's leading the charge to make sure sort of stuff doesn't happen in corporate America. So I do want to maybe add one little piece of information that maybe Lodervik was trying to ask that I didn't hear you say that the legal grounds upon which Exxon sued these activist investors was disruption of process. Yep. That was the the leg that they had to stand on. And I'm with you, Mark. I say that that's exactly the way they need to handle this because it was brought up for a vote. It did not pass. And they just tried to reward it and, sh- and shove it down their throats again. Yeah. And the world's appetite for this stuff, sort of stuff, this kind of shenanigans is starting to change. And once again, it, it needed to, right? What's the next one? Next one is Sean Spence has written in and asks, Mark, is there any other platform besides Apple Podcasts to listen to Balance Point and Behind the Curtain? I am not an Apple fan, but I am definitely a fan of your podcast. Well, who isn't there, Sean? Help a brother out and share your exclusive content with the Android platform people. So, Sean and other people that may have the same type of request, I've gotten a few of these. What I need is a few more. There's not an easy way for us to give you access to our exclusive content because basically it was an experiment. When Apple introduced their their paywall, they actually reached out to us. I actually had a real live Apple person. Try getting a real live Apple person <laughs> in today's world who was literally our account manager. She's on Apple's payroll, and she helped us set up our subscription model, and it was wonderful. But it's only available if you have Apple login, Apple access, right, to Apple Podcast. And so if I have enough of y'all ask me to want to listen to our, our exclusive content, the balance point behind the curtain, what we'll do is we'll we'll set it back up uh, using a, probably our podcast hosting provider, Blueberry. And that way, anybody can have access, not just the people who have Apple. But that's going to cost me money internally and time. And so, you know, if I get four or five people other than Sean in the next couple months asking me this, we'll go ahead and make it available to everybody. And Sean, I think I'm going to reach out to you directly. Maybe I can share some of that content with you. It just, it's just, it's not going to be easy to listen to. But as a loyal listener to ours, if there's something very specific you want to listen to, the money we make with the subscription is going to charity anyway. I don't mind giving you access. But audience, not all of y'all, right? So if we have enough of you who want to listen to that exclusive content, let me know and we'll do the work internally, absorb the cost internally, and we'll make it available to everybody. Okay, next up we have Sancho, who is an engineer, and he has this question for you. Still don't understand how employees take Exxon private. Its market cap is $400 billion, not $400 million, as you said. So if 40,000 employees got together, they would need to raise $10 million each. If they raised $1 million each, that would only be 10%. So where would the rest of the money come from? Yeah. So, Sancho, uh, thank you for the question. That $400 billion, not $400 million mistake was actually from the reader question that, w- that was asked from an actual guy named Carson. And so that's why the, the number was wrong. I knew it was $400 billion. 
However, to answer your question, what I think is going to happen is going to be a blend. I think you have a management buyout. I think some employees are going to get a chance to buy into this deal. But I do think the majority of the money would come from management buyout, not the employees. And the, the reality is that money, the real money would not come from the management team. The real money would come from the board and executives of ExxonMobil who have the connections with the right financial institutions as a whole, as an aggregate, could come up with that crazy large number. And I know $400 billion is an incredibly large number. And, and remember this, this is my prediction. I, don't, I have no insight to what ExxonMobil is trying to do, whether this is actually something they're really looking at or not. To me, it makes a lot of sense. And I think as far as the deal going through, believe it or not, I think that raising the capital to make this the deal work financially is not the hardest part. I think the hardest part is going to be to convince the company as a whole that it's the right direction to go, go towards. And then then it's going to, in some ways, give them a huge advantage because they're not public with their competitors, you know, the Chevrons and the Shells and BPs. But in other ways, it's going to hurt them a little bit because they're not public, right? So it's a, it's a huge risk yeah. if they do this. But the money will come from the relationships the executives have at ExxonMobil. And, and some of that money will be from their pockets, but I think a lot of it is the extremely large financial institutions that Exxon has relation with. You have to remember, when Exxon does like a, a ultra deep water project in some ocean somewhere, from the beginning of spudding that well to decommission that well, that might be an $80 billion well, right? This is a big capital industry. That $400 billion is a big number, but it's doable. Okay. So we have a question from Matt, who's in business development at Chevron. And he says, Mark, you frequently mention lack of lithium supply as a limiting factor for EV production. This sounds similar to peak oil arguments made in the past for our industry. Won't technology and extraction methods like Exxon extracting lithium from wastewater help fill the gap? Similar to fracking. How is lithium different? What am I missing? Matt, you're not missing anything. Matt writes in quite often. I like Matt. I actually met him once at somebody else's conference somewhere in a random situation at the, the bar. So, Matt, I'm pretty sure I don't say, I don't mention quite often that lithium supply is a limiting factor for EV production because I know it's not. However, if I have said it in the past, you're, you're spot on. One of the things I'm really excited about is not just the ability to extract lithium without doing surface mining, without big pit mining, but basically finding lithium uh, reserves injecting the right amount of water at the right temperature, the right chemicals, which would then cause that lithium to go into solution. You pull that water back up and you're able to refine it with almost no impact to the surface. But all of us in the industry know what production water is. And one of the, the metals, the heavy metals that's in production water is lithium. So what I see coming somewhere down the road is several companies, not just ExxonMobil, but several companies coming together because each one of them has got a specific strength and looking at being able to mine the valuable minerals out of produced water, which then is going to make totally different profit chain around something that now is a waste product that we have to spend money to, to get rid of. And it causes issues. The moment we can start making a profit off produced water, that's going to change the whole dynamics having to deal with produced water because it's going to make a profit. And then we there's millions of options after that point. So I, I agree with you. I think the mining of lithium, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. There's enough lithium on this planet to do something like this. And one of the waste products of our own industry and upstream is that produced water, which has a decent lithium content. So now we just need to figure out how to make sure we can extract from produced water and then figure out how to do it at scale. And I think it's coming. 
Well, Matt also had another question, which I think we should have gone to that one first because it follows on from the the previous question. I think that was from from Sancho that was asking about the managed buyout. And so Mark, he says, you predicted ExxonMobil will start to go private in 2024 in your 2024 predictions. How would this happen and why would other majors not do the same? So remember, I predicted that it will happen. I'm not saying it will start in 2024. What I'm saying is, or I'm not saying it will happen in 2024. I'm saying the process will start in 2024. When the public will find out about it, if I'm right about that, probably will not be 2024, so a year or two after that. Basically, I think it would be a management buyout. I've talked about this a couple times. I just talked about this previously. There's a large large sum of capital that would need to be raised. I think the, the executive team at ExxonMobil and their relationships globally could raise that a capital. I think there'll be some employee buy-in. I also think they're they're the Exxon may actually intentionally reduce the number of shares of stock before they actually go into this. And why would the other majors not do the same? Matt, as much as I love your company and Shell and BP, Exxon takes the brunt of the negative public perception. If you ask any young people in today's world what company is destroying the planet, Exxon is the first word that comes out of their mouth. In some ways they've kind of taken it for the team. And so I think that's the reason that the other public companies won't go private. But it's also a bigger picture. That I think we've hit the the peak of negative public perception for our industry, and I hope I'm right. I think every year moving forward, and I actually think we hit the peak a couple of years ago, I think every year moving forward, we have more and more people, especially young people, realizing the value of our industry and how modern lifestyles is not possible without it. I think poor ExxonMobil, as enormous as they are, and as good of engineering and uh, uh, procurement company as they are, I think they're really limited by negative public perception at a much greater degree than than their competitors and other super majors. So I think that's one of the reasons they'll go public. Will the other super majors look at doing something similar? I don't know. I, long-term-wise, I, I really think that we're having a, a revolution in our industry. And I said this in my couple of predictions a couple of years ago. I, I think you know Chevron and Exxon are now what I call mega majors. They're so much bigger because they made the right decisions for investments than BP and Shell. BP and Shell, unfortunately, uh, called the renewables movement the wrong way, lost a lot of money, lost some market share. And BP especially, and I love BP. I think BPs become an acquisition target. So I think this world of super majors is going to change, and it has to, because the biggest threat to the super majors isn't negative public perception. It's all the nationalized oil companies that are squeezing your company and other super majors out of places to drill. If you look at the barrels on a reserve that that all the super majors have, every year it shrinks while the nationalized oil companies, the barrels on reserve go up. Why? Because companies like Petrobras are – Pemex or Saudi Aramco or whatever are going, you can't drill here. Whereas years ago, they would love for you to come drill there. So I think long-term wise, the super majors, biggest competitors are nationalized oil companies in the in the tightening of the areas that we were actually allowed to go produce hydrocarbons in. Now, I think that's 50 or 75 years out, but I think that's one of the reasons that you won't see the other super majors go private. Although if they did after Exxon did, it would not surprise me. But we get some deep financial strategic thinking here, Matt. So hopefully it helped you. Okay, so let's turn now to Jordan, who's an RD&E chemist, and his is a, a personal type question. I'm looking for resources to increase my base knowledge in the oil and gas space. I have worked for an oil and gas company for several years, post-chemistry PhD, but I am currently a jack of many trades, master of none. My current role is closer to a technician, and I want to be more marketable and improve my understanding quickly 
independent of the work I'm currently doing. I'm just not sure where to start, and I do not have many mentors to look up to for what I need. Delphine, this is a good one. So uh, post-PhD in chemistry, which means, Jordan, you probably have a really good understanding of the software tools out there to do big data analytics. That's something that you almost have to have your foot in. And if you don't, you should. You should go pick up some big data analytics courses. The other thing is, as a chemist, I'm not sure how much, you know, if I look at the future of our industry, I think chemistry is one of the jobs that probably is going to be in highest demand. You know, like I said, I think the oil and gas industry is moving away from being the electron industry to be in the molecular industry, right? You know this is better than than I do, better than probably anybody. Almost everything that takes to make modern life possible is made from hydrocarbons because that molecule is so easy to manipulate. It's so easy to get things to stick to it that you that almost everything that we depend upon is made from hydrocarbons in some shape or fashion. So I think I would pursue your 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 chemistry. Maybe go reach out to some different companies that have a heavy interest in organic chemistry, especially hydraulic. Excuse me, <laughs> hydrocarbon chemistry, and get into some big data analytics, some AI. There's a couple of companies I know out there right now. I'm actually working with one that came from the medical field that have used AI to help predict the performance of certain drugs. But the reason they reach out to me is it takes them a very long time to monetize that because they're making drugs for humans. It takes a lot of human trials, a lot of time, a lot of repeat tests to make sure it's safe. Whereas they want to just manipulate molecules for the oil and gas industry. All it has to do is work, right? And so I, I think I would stay with your chemistry space. And if for some reason, if you're sick of chemistry I, and, and you know maybe you are and you want to do something different pick another life science that 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 makes sense to you you know physics and chemistry are not that far apart in a lot of ways biology and chemistry are not that far apart there's some other life sciences that would be easier easy for you to pick up because of your chemistry background that is in high demand in the oil and gas industry right now so anyway jordan hopefully that was helpful to you okay we now have a question that has come in from Catherine leung she says, hello, I have received oil and gas royalties. I was wondering if you could help me understand or what I should be asking. I have no idea on what they're paying me. It is in my family 100 years and just now recently hit gas. So first thing, Catherine, everybody that's listening to this show, or maybe not everybody, a lot of them would love to be at your place. It's a great place to be. You do need to understand what you're being paid for why you're being paid, how long you're being paid, and what the contractual commitments on your side and the operator side are. What you really need is a landman. Before I do any of that, because you didn't tell me where you're from, go online and search for oil and gas royalty calculators. There's hundreds of companies out there that have the data sets from different parts of the U.S. So they you're going to be able to go in there and tell them how much acreage you have, what your production is, what part of the world you're in, and they're going to be able to tell you online more or less what you should be getting. That's going to give you a gut feel, but what you really need to find is a certified landman. And a landman, the man part's management, so it's land management. The short version of it's landman. has nothing to do with gender. That's their job is to understand royalties and payments and to make sure they negotiate things fairly. Is it AAPL? I think it's AAPL's Association for yeah, Landmen. I think so. So, Catherine, look for an AAPL chapter near you and just reach out to them and tell them the same thing you told me, and they will have experts to help you. But before I did any of that, I'd find one of those online oil and gas royalty calculators just to give you a gut feel of where you're standing right now. And, Catherine, congratulations, but don't wait on this. There's a decent chance that 
you may be entitled to more and you're not getting it, but you won't know that. There's also a decent chance that your mineral rights may be lumped in with some other people's mineral rights. And at some point that the resale of those mineral rights may have an end date on it. And you would want to know that. So, you know, do the online calculator first, but second, find a landman in your local area of the country and just reach out to them and they'll be happy to help you. All right. We have a process engineer who calls himself, I think he mistyped it. I think he meant to say Mr. Anchovies. He typed Mr. Anchovies because his email has anchovy in the in the name. So his question is short and sweet, and I think it's actually kind of funny. Do you think Exxon will achieve net zero? If so, when? Yeah, there's not enough information here to answer this, and I'm sure this is a joke. But Mr. Anchovies, ExxonMobil will knows already when it will achieve net zero, or if it will, probably down to the minute. It is paying very close attention to what's going on politically, legally, and regulatory, not just here in the U.S., but all over the world. And if it's to their benefit to be net zero, so if it's to their benefit to sequester the same, and we're going to use carbon dioxide because that's what everybody's talking about, they achieve net zero, although carbon dioxide is really not a dangerous gas at all. It's actually plant food. It's actually a very healthy gas. But anyway, if ExxonMobil decides that it wants its CO2 emissions to be equal to the amount of CO2 that it can sequester, it will do it. And it will do it in a bunch of different ways. Uh, you see them in Oxy really hard looking at direct air capture, which right now doesn't make fiscal sense. But solar and wind didn't make fiscal sense when they first came out either. <laughs> Neither did nuclear. You know, it just takes time to bring that stuff to scale. And if there's any company in the world that can bring direct air capture scale, it's ExxonMobil. So when are they going to do it? I don't know. It's going to be driven by how politics and public in opinion affect their ability to recruit and retain talent, to find areas to drill in, to operate. And whenever it gets to the point where the public perception prevents them from doing it, when that dollar amount gets to be the right amount, uh, Exxon will be net zero if they choose to do so. Probably not the answer you're looking for, but that's the truth. <laughs> okay, so this question is a little bit repetitive from a couple of others that we've already heard, but I want to read it anyway, Mark, because I just love the way he lays it out and compliments the show. So this is from Drew Venosa, who is a finance and accounting major at Indiana University. He says, hi, Mark, oil and gas this week has been invaluable for learning more about the industry. Thank you, Drew. In the Q&A a couple weeks ago, you discussed why you thought ExxonMobil would do a management buyout. I thought the rationale for this was sound, but when you talked about this, you mentioned it had a $400 million market cap, not billion, a couple times. I'd be stunned if their team can afford that price tag for the buyout. Do you think they take on debt to buy it out, like Gulf's team had the option to do so with KKR in the 80s? Thank you and love the show. Drew, you weren't around in the 80s. <laughs> I do remember that buyout, though, because I was. So the answer to your question is, first, thank you for being a loyal listener. And I do believe that the management team, the executive manager team, if they decided to, could tap into the resources to get that $400 million number. I'm sorry, $400 billion number. The truth is they're not going to really have to get $400 billion. You have to remember – when this happens, 
Exxon's free cash flow plays into this, right? The same way is they could take on debt. If you notice, Exxon's been shedding a lot of debt lately. They've also been buying back their own shares. That is typical in a time when you don't want to invest money into growth and you have good margins like Exxon has. But I think there's more to it. The one thing I'd pay close attention to, Drew, since you're a finance major, is if you see Exxon in the future soon somewhere issuing bonds to raise cash, even though they're sitting on all this cash now, there's no reason them to raise more cash. And if you see that happen, that's telling me that maybe somebody's thinking about doing something very expensive inside of Exxon, like buy all their own share, buy the whole company back. But great question, Drew. I, I do believe they could do it. I don't think they'll take on a lot of debt because they're not going to have to. Okay, now we've got Deborah McMillan, who is the vice president of operations for Moden Energy. And she says, love the show, guys, and your chemistry on the microphone. Do you think that the wave of mergers and acquisitions that are happening now in the oil and gas industry will spill over to the national oil companies? That's a damn good question, Deborah. Typically, the NOCs, because they own everything, if you don't know this audience, the U.S., and I'm going to get some pushback on this. I know it's not 100% accurate, but overall, more or less, the U.S. is the only country in the world where people like you and me can own the mineral rights. Most countries, the government owns the mineral rights, no matter who owns the surface, right? And so they have a built-in advantage. Do I see them doing mergers and acquisitions? Not really, because they don't have to. I do see them maybe doing some joint ventures. The other thing is, if I'm right about at some point, BP is going to be dismantled and the parts that are valuable to BP, other companies are will assume, I could see a nationalized oil company picking up parts of BP, right? If it made sense, made fiscal sense to them. The problem, unfortunately, with most nationalized oil companies, quite frankly, and nobody ever wants to mention this, is the corruption. The corruption gets in the way from them doing very strategic, intelligent business. They tend to make money because there's no other options. They have a monopoly. So I don't think you'll see a lot of mergers and acquisitions in NOC space. I do see them, anytime you have a large merger and acquisition, though, it creates these side deals over the next couple of years. And I can see some of the NOCs tap into that. I mean, you look at Pemex. They bought the Shell Deer Park Refinery here. That was smart for them. That was very smart. I didn't see that one coming. But it's stuff like that I think you can see more of the NOCs doing. Yeah, I think that that's that's right, Mark. You know, having grown up in that environment, that which if you're going to see that any sort of merger and acquisition, it's going, it's not going to be oil company to oil company. It's going to be oil company to service providers, yeah, services yeah. companies, or different types of assets, downstream yeah. assets or whatever. So, okay, Chris Beasley, who is a director of sales for Superior Energy, says, longtime listener, first time writing in. It seems you two attend a lot of conferences and trade shows in our industry, and I was curious, how would you approach event marketing to drive introductions? Not sales leads, but just making a connection to companies that could possibly buy our products and services. And Mark, I love, I like your segues. I like the better when you said love. <laughs> well. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. <laughs> I get grief over my segues all the time. So a couple things. Driving introductions to companies that could buy your product or service. To me, that is a sales lead. And maybe to you, it's not. And, and it, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. So answer your question is very simple. Get on the speaking circuit. Do you know what Superior does? They're an awful service company. I'm sure they are, I, but I don't know what they do. I'm not familiar with yeah, them. I'm sorry, Chris. I've heard the name of your company. I don't know what y'all do. But whatever you do, it has to solve a problem, right? Let's say you're a casing expert. So you're the expert in, in, in casing wells. What you need to do is look at all the oil and gas conferences. Now, you need to do this a year ahead of time. All of the large ones like OTC, Adapec, I mean, even the s smaller ones like Nape here locally, 
all of them a year ahead of time, except abstracts for people to speak around something important to that part of the industry, go ahead and submit the abstracts that talks about the problem that your company solves. And I'll go back to my casing example. So, you know, say y'all are casing experts and you're able to case hard to case wells or come back to wells that have lost control and recase them. You would put together a speech on how using the right materials and process would allow you to recase the well after a blowout. Well, the only people that would come listen to you and give that talk at a conference are the people that have that problem, that are interested in that, right? Which means those are the people that could buy from you, the companies that could buy from you. So instead of having a one-on-one sales meeting, you can almost think of it as having a one-on-50 or 500 or 5,000, how many people are in that room. That's probably one of the best ways to use event marketing to drive introductions to companies that can buy from you. Not putting up a booth, not having the best swag, none of that stuff. Literally get on the speaking circuit for those conferences and trade shows that you're interested in. And Chris, that should point you in the right direction. If you need more help with that, reach out to me directly. I'm happy to help you with it. I would also suggest to Chris that he might attend an OGGN mixer. <laughs> Go to a Delfina. <laughs> in all seriousness, Chris, yes. Attend a mixer. If you do, come find me. I'm typically in jeans and a black t-shirt and introduce yourself. Okay. We have a question from Anonymous, and we will soon, it'll be clear to your listeners, Mark, why Anonymous wants to be anonymous. She says, I work for a large service company, and one of our suppliers, who I have had a great working relationship with for three years, let me know that they lose job applications from women who are applying to be field technicians. She told me the reason they do this is they know from experience there will be some sexual harassment from the male technicians to the female techs if they hire them. To me, this seems wrong, but I do not know what to do especially since she is both a woman and does not work for my company. Any help or direction would be greatly appreciated. And I'm a huge fan of Mark and Paige for many reasons, but one is sometimes I feel like this podcast is the only place that will deal with the sometimes difficult reality of working in our industry. Keep it turned to the right, guys. Anonymous, that is a rough question. Yeah. Delphine, you want to take first stab at that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not paused, but no, I, mean, no, I, I would rather, well, I, I would like your input on this. No, and, and it's easier to get some straight talk from the female voice, right? And it keeps it, as she says, honest and working with the tough, the tough questions. What I would say to you, Anonymous, is that you are right in that this is not good behavior and that you should not support it. What companies like this are doing is they feel that they are making a very intelligent decision. They don't feel like they're discriminating against women. They're not anti-female. They're trying to anticipate a problem that would happen. What do you do? You can't lecture them. You can't try to tell them how they should behave or not behave because it's going to go in one ear and out the other. But what you can do is you can take the position that anybody that is a service provider to you, a vendor to you, must meet certain requirements. Companies respond to their customers. Companies respond to the money that they will make or not make based on what their clients are looking for. So you can put in your RFPs, your RFQs, your RFIs, certain social responsibility requirements that say, does your company have X amount of 
females members of your your organization. This is what is baked into a lot of the ESG metrics that financial institutions are requiring from the companies that they invest in, that there's certain criteria that they must meet from a corporate social responsibility perspective. You have the power to do that as well. Yeah. And, you know, looking at the root cause of this, the problem is what's ever allowing the male techs to harass the female techs. The problem is not the female techs being hired or not being hired. And to me, that screams a leadership issue. I don't know the, obviously you're anonymous. Uh, I don't know your company or, or the subcontractor that you're referencing, but there's a leadership issue there. If somebody is looking the other way because the male techs uh, say things they shouldn't to the female techs, that's a problem. Now the guys that are doing it, it's their problem too. And they know they shouldn't be doing it. If, if it's, they're saying things they wouldn't say to their daughters or their wives, they know that's wrong. But to me, this screams leadership. I love Delfina's approach of come to it from the, the actual corporate side, both the financial and ESG. You also don't tell me what your role is, where you are in the management hierarchy. I think you should find somebody in your company, upper management that you trust. And that needs to be somebody pretty high up. Pull them aside. This, is, this does not need to be public yet. Pull them aside and tell them what's going on and seek their counsel. Um, it could be that this senior person in your company knows a senior person at other company who can also pull them aside and they can get this thing fixed, which just would benefit everybody. But this is, yeah, this is a rough situation. I'm sorry you're in this situation because this would bother me too. But it definitely, you can't just let it keep going. Now that you know this, you can't keep let it keep uh, being status quo because it's just not right. Can I offer one sure. one more thing? As those of of your audience knows, my audience knows, I started off as a roustabout on a drilling rig in 1979 when women were not allowed to go out on the water. So I have lived the life of a woman in this industry. I have seen it all. I have experienced it all. I have bored it all. So I will let on anonymous, if you would like, you can reach out to me and I would be more than happy to talk to you, to talk to your leadership as someone that you could just, you know, call to, to have a chat with because some of my colleagues in the industry, um, I'm thinking particularly some executive vice presidents of human resources and how they've managed these sorts of problems inside of their organizations. I'm happy to have a private conversation with you and maybe give you some more off the air advice. Yeah, anonymous. And that would be strictly between you and Delphine. It would go nowhere else. I'll right. reach out to her on LinkedIn, probably the quickest way to, to reach out to her. Just let her know you were anonymous on this episode. That was nice of you to offer that, Delphina. I'm always happy to help. Okay, so next one is Sarah Williamson, who is a project manager with Hunting PLC. She asks, over the years of listening to this fantastic podcast, there's been several mentions and questions from the audience about OGGN having a dating offering of some sort. This is usually meant to be cheeky, but with all the craziness and schedules and travel, if you're single in this industry, I think many would appreciate a way to meet others that are open for a romantic relationship that are also not going to discount you because you work for an oil and gas company. And if these people were vetted by OGGN, I would pay a premium for this service. I would love to hear both of your thoughts on this. And Paige, that red lipstick looks fantastic on you. Yes, it does, doesn't it, Mark? It looks uh, fantastic. It, it, no, that's Paige's color for sure. <laughs> it really is. Sarah, you know, you make – I normally don't put these questions in here because I get these type of questions. And we get these questions way more than you would think. 
And the only reason I put in here is you appeal to the sales guy in me when you said you would pay a premium for this service. <laughs> we don't have any plans to, to make a dating site or a dating app or anything, but we've had a lot of people ask. And also for the first time ever, Sarah, I sort of see your point. I mean, I'm in a committed relationship, but if I wasn't, I would like to have a tool where I could vet romantic partners to make sure they were, they supported my life in the oil and gas industry and thought the same things that I thought and understood what goes on in this industry. So, so Sarah, I'll do this much. We have a rolling uh, 18-month business plan where it's it's really future ideas and, and what would take to get there. I will throw this idea, as much as our leadership team is going to laugh at me, I will throw this idea in our rolling 18-month business plan, and we will look at it as a team. And if for some reason we ever decide to do this, I'm going to make a mental note. I'll reach back out to you and let you know because I expect you to be the first buyer. <laughs> I can't wait to see it, Mark. Oh, I could just talk about that one all day. <laughs> okay, here we go. Gabrielle Baker, who's an operator in process controls for Gulf South, asks, Mark, you said in your predictions for 2024 that there will be a boom in midstream infrastructure growth here in the United States and also internationally. What is going to be the biggest bottleneck or constraint for that growth? And Paige, without you, this show would have went nowhere. I agree. I listen to the show as much for your input as I do for Mark's. You're both equals. Technically, you are a co-host, but that person that slighted you in the review for being just a co-host is a moron <laughs> and probably lives alone in his mom's basement with a bunch of cats. Hey, don't be hating on cats. <laughs> and even if cats don't really like him, they are just there for the food. <laughs> <laughs> Gabriel, I'll give you double thumbs up. <laughs> That's one of the politest, funniest put downs on somebody left us review from an audience member ever. That was good, Gabriel. It was. That was really good. <laughs> Biggest bottleneck or constraint for growth, uh, unfortunately, is permitting. Yeah. Uh, you're seeing an, a – it used to be that if you own some property somewhere and somebody said, hey, we want to put a pipeline right away through your pasture, you would go celebrate with your kids and your wife and your grandparents and everybody else because once they were finished, you couldn't see the pipeline was buried underground. You could still use the surface of the land for whatever building buildings on or farming or you know cows or whatever, and you got a monthly check for the rest of your life. Now, because of negative public reception, nobody wants a pipeline in their backyard. You're seeing indigenous tribes leverage the pipeline companies, trying to make them – fiscally move pipelines or making the fiscal cost of moving the pipeline so expensive they have to pay the tribes more money, which is basically blackmail. And it's a mess right now here and in, in getting things permitted. And what's kind of sad about that is the demand for more pipeline is there. It's the biggest I've ever seen it before. The capital's there. All the companies know they'll get a good return on their investment. So the money's there to actually do all these projects. Um, it'll create thousands and thousands and thousands of construction jobs. And yet the permit is where it's going to be slowed down. Even to the point where I'm starting to see some fights in between the the anti-oil and gas people, pro-renewable people around CO2 pipelines. And it's 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 literally get, for, for permitting CO2 pipelines. It is literally getting ridiculous. So I think that is the constraint. We're still in a supply chain constraint for parts and pieces, although that's gotten much better. Although this this conflict in the Red Sea doesn't change and, and more and more large container vessels have to go around the Cape of Good Hope, uh, we're going to still have those supply chain constraints. Labor is another big one. Here in the U.S., it's hard to find the right welders and pipe fitters to build these pipelines, but I think the biggest constraint is, is going to be permitting. Okay. Now, Terrence Richard has written in. Stop. I don't think his last name is Richard. Oh, okay. I think it's Richard. It's Richard. Oh, wait, you know what? Reading. If I had kept reading, <laughs> if I had kept reading, then I would have known that Terrence's last name is Richard. 
Okay, sorry. I didn't read far, far enough ahead. But I can tell you he's, now that I'm reading far enough ahead, he's going to make me hungry. He's a pipeline engineer with Boardwalk. And he says, Mark and Paige, when are you going to do a crawfish boil in Louisiana? This season, they are in short supply and prices are high. But still, I can find you all the crawfish you would need. Plus, my company has a team of boilers who would be happy to help. We could maybe even raise some money for a local charity, which, by the way, is one of my favorite things that you do. Hit me up when you're ready. J'adore ton podcast. Very good, Delphine. Since I know French is not your native language. It is not. Yeah. So basically says he loves the podcast in French. So Terrence, I have already reached out to you directly by the time this goes out. I would love to do a crawfish boil. Unfortunately, I know they're in short supply and it's just too expensive to get craw- good crawfish right now. But we wait. We can wait till the fall and actually do it. And by that time, the prices should drop. And you know what? In my email that I sent you, I asked you to find a local charity that you and your company support. My only ask is that they don't pay their executive team 300000 a year. I want most of the money to go to the actual people in need. But would love to come back to my home state of Louisiana, do a crawfish boil, uh, which, by the way, everybody that's listening to Louisiana, our next Lafayette, Louisiana mixer is being planned for, I believe, May. Follow us on LinkedIn to, to find out when that's gotten. But we, we're going to have our second Lafayette, Louisiana mixer in May. Uh, Terrence, I don't know where you live in Louisiana, but if you're close, make the drive. I'd love to meet you in person. All right. And I think this is last up for today. We have a question from Brittany Folgers, who's a project accountant with SLB. I just love your Sunday update. Any plans to take the recipes that are in there each week and turn it into an OGGN cookbook? Or even better, what if OGGN had an actual cooking show (laughs) where the different hosts made the recipes that are in the Sunday update? I'd spend money on both easily. And this is my favorite podcast in the world. Please keep it up. Hey, Delfina, what if we took Brittany's idea and what was the other young woman's name? Sarah's idea. Sarah. And had a show on dating while you're cooking. Dating while you're cooking. (laughs) (laughs) I, I would love to see Jordan Driscoll hosting that. Do you cook? Yes, sir, I do. Okay. Pretty damn well. Yeah, you have a Latin background, so I know you, you probably were made to learn to cook. As a, as Actually, a it's my, it was my Italian grandmother, so oh, my Italian even, yeah. repertoire is pretty deep. So, Brittany, we've had actually a bunch of people ask us about the cookbook. What we're going to do is rate until we run out of recipes, which is going to be it's going to be about a year. If you follow the Sunday update, some of those recipes are coming from a catering company that has catered only gas for a hundred years. Some of those recipes are actually my family's. Recipes. My great great grandfather was a very well known chef in New Orleans. Owned multiple restaurants, and then some of the recipes are actually have been brought in from our from our listeners. So the cookbook is probably a decent chance of it happening. If we do do it, we're going to sell it on our merch store. We're going to donate that money to charity. The cooking show is an interesting idea. We don't have the bandwidth right now to even think about doing it. We're doing some other stuff that's going to be uh, video first and podcast or audio second. But I will keep this in the in the book of ideas. I think it'd be fun if all the hosts got together and cooked something. Yeah. I, I don't. I mean, it would be chaos. We'd have to figure out how to do it. And I'm not sure, Brittany, that we could make that a regular show. But the cookbook is a decent chance of it happening. I do like the idea of us having a cooking show. We could be the only podcast network in the world that has a cooking <laughs> show. But I'm, I love to cook. I, I love everything to do with food. I love the the shopping for it, the preparation, the cooking, the serving, um, all of that. So, uh, what about the cleanup? I do the cleanup too. All right. Yeah. In fact, I'm one of those people that can't go to sleep with dirty dishes. Oh, I can't and, either. 
I don't usually use the dishwasher unless I'm forced to. I'd rather hand wash everything. Yep, People think I'm here. crazy. Yeah. It's just quicker. <laughs> and right. do you clean as you go? You have to clean as you go. All right, making sure. Because if sure. you don't clean as you go, you end up having stuff piled up on your cabinets and you you can't actually you do make it, sure get anything you prepare done. well. Yeah. And then you start worrying about cross-contamination, mm-hmm. right? So you mm-hmm. get somebody sick. So, of course, I'll wash as I go. All right, making sure. Okay. So, you know what it's time for, Delfina? What time is it? It's time for This Week in Petroleum History. Ooh. Do you know what happened in February 2nd in 1923? I, I know you don't. I, the well, I probably was alive back then. Let me think. You were not alive in 1923. <laughs> I feel like it's some days. Okay. But you are old enough to remember this, so do I. Do you remember this compound? Tetraethylene. Tetraethylene? Yeah. So, no. the world's first anti-knot gasoline containing tetraethylene lead was introduced and went went to sale in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, General Motors worked with this gas company to put the lead in gasoline because it protected the valves when they slammed it to the heads. And so for years, we had lead in our gasoline. Right. We used to have buy lead at gasoline or unleaded gasoline. Yes, They had to redesign the way the engines were made, specifically the valve seats, to move us from leaded gasoline to unleaded gasoline. Unleaded, yeah. I remember that. The first leaded gasoline came out in 1923. Oh, February 1868, refiners seek to end the Civil War tax. So up until 1863, refineries were paying a war tax of $1 per 42 gallons, which is a barrel, 42 gallons on refined products, including kerosene, which was a hot product for downstream back then to light people's homes. That's how we saved the whales. Right before we start using kerosene lighter homes, we used whale oil, which was not good for the whales or for our environment. We almost wiped the whales off the face of the planet. But anyway, all the way up until 1868, they were still paying a Civil War tax, and Treasury Secretary Salmon B. Chase said, you know what? Let's get rid of that to help the refineries. Uh, February 1920, Breckridge Field joins North Texas oil boom. Number one Cheney well tapped in North Texas. Had a, a Texas record at that time of producing 3,700 barrels of oil per day. Uh, this is one of 200 wells drilled in that area of Texas, and most of the wells were drilled by wooden derricks to a depth of 150 feet. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> uh, what? Always love the week of petroleum history. Other thing you need to love is our newsletters. We have two of them, our Sunday update, which we talked about. That's the one with the recipes. We also have an oil and gas events newsletter. Both those links in the show notes. Both those newsletters are free. Weekly rig count as of February 18th. Uh, the U.S. is at 621, down by two. Canada's at 234, up by two. International, we're at 965, up by 10. Those are all good, strong numbers. Let's hope those rig counts internationally continue to go up. Uh, you know the drill. If you want to have a question answered on this show, the first Friday Q&A, go to Oil and Gas this week, uh, submit your question. You can also do it on all social media except Facebook. We don't check Facebook Messenger, sorry. So hit us up on LinkedIn, hit us up on X, hit us up on OGGN.com. Remember, the goal is not to stump Paige and I, or in this case, Delfina. The goal is to help educate our audiences. So go ahead and submit the question. Also, while you're out in the interwebs, go ahead and join up our, our LinkedIn company page. That's where you can find out about everything we do first. Uh, if you're like myself or any of our experts like Delfina, to come deliver a keynote, to speak in front of your organization to do a live podcast reach out to us happy to share details it's a lot, always a lot of fun all right delfina thank you for filling in for page it was great having you on the show well i certainly did not you know live up to her incredible talent but hopefully it will it'll get us through till she's back on her feet you were fine you were fine all right folks remember do great work pay it forward and we will see you next time 
Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.